You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, episode 21. Today, we're sitting down with Pennsylvania-based nature photographer Cody Schultz to chat about black and white, large format film photography, mental health, connecting with nature, and a whole lot more. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hey, everybody, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. First, I just want to thank everyone who has supported the show so far, whether that's through leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, buying me a coffee, or simply sharing the show with others. Each of these helps the podcast reach new listeners, and it can have a more positive impact as a result. And I truly appreciate knowing that our guests and the Tidbit Tuesday episodes are helping you on your journey as an outdoor photographer. So thank you. Just two quick announcements before we jump into today's episode. One, there's still time to register for my Compose with Clarity live virtual workshop, which will be held on September 21st and again on September 28th. So it's the same workshop, but on two separate dates in order to accommodate people's schedules. In Compose with Clarity, you'll learn how to effectively use compositional elements like light, contrast, shapes, lines, and color to create images that express your vision and that you're proud of. We'll talk about different compositional arrangements and how to use them or not based on understanding how our brains work to perceive visual information. If you're feeling stuck and want to elevate your approach to composition, then I hope you check it out. I'm offering podcast listeners 15% off the registration fee when you use the special link composewithclarity.com to register. There you will get more details about the workshop, see what previous students had to say, and register with the 15% discount. So again, go to composewithclarity.com to learn more, and I really hope to see you in September. And second, there's just a little bit of time left to submit your images to the Natural Landscape Photography Awards. This is the first photography competition that honors photographers who prefer to depict the natural world in a realistic manner without applying extensive post-processing techniques. So if this sounds like you, then be sure to check out naturallandscapeawards.com to find out about their submission requirements, their core values, the potential prizes you could win, and more. And if you use the coupon code OPS15, you'll get 15% off your entry fee. And good luck. I'm really excited to bring you today's guest, Cody Schultz, because he's unlike anyone we've had on the show so far. Cody is our first guest who photographs exclusively in black and white and uses a large format camera, the technical details of which we definitely dive into in our discussion today. So let me give you a little background on Cody. Cody is a Pennsylvania-based nature photographer and a creative writer. His journey into photography started back in 2014 as a way to cope with anxiety and depression. At the time, he enjoyed photographing any and all subjects and had an interest in pursuing fashion photography. 
However, in 2017, he started spending more time in nature and appreciating its benefits on his mental health, and he started focusing more specifically on nature photography. And as a way to expand his photography skills, he challenged himself to photograph exclusively in black and white for a whole year, and he was immediately hooked. Then in 2019, Cody purchased his first large format film camera and now shoots with a Chamonix 45 F2 with a single prime lens, which we talk about today, and a whole lot more. And so without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Cody Schultz. Cody, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thanks so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to to get to know you and your work uh, some more. So I already gave the listeners a brief bio in the introduction about your work. But before we dive in, I was wondering if you could, you know, maybe just take us back in time a little bit and tell us more about how and why you got started in photography and what what led you eventually to nature photography? Yeah. So uh, as you had already mentioned a little bit, I started photography back in 2014 and really picked up a camera because I wanted a way to uh, help to cope with my anxiety and my depression that I was facing, the mental Mm -hmm. health issues, um, which were taking a toll on my relationships with uh, family, with friends and all of that. Um, And we can get into that a little bit more if you want. I don't have a problem with that. yeah, sure. I mean, I understand. I, I also uh, struggle a bit with anxiety and depression. I definitely went through a, a rough period before I went more fully into photography. And it, so I understand it had also has been a um, a helpful avenue for, for dealing with some mental health struggles. Oh, for so, yeah, sure. If you want to chat about that, about that, that'd be great. Yeah, especially last year was tough. But um, yeah, so... I originally started off with a little bit of portrait photography, trying to get into the fashion world of things. Um, Mm -hmm. And that ended up not really working out all that well because I was trying to rely on uh, high school friends and colleagues that were uh, not the most reliable individuals. Yeah. So in 2016, I decided, you know what, under the influence of my girlfriend, who uh, we were starting to be out in nature a little bit more. And we decided that we were just going to go out with the camera and see what we get in nature. And nice. initially, um, I started watching under the, it was recommended to me through YouTube, through their algorithm, uh, Thomas Heaton's uh, mm-hmm. photography channel, yeah, along with Ben Horns. And at first, I didn't really care for either of them because I mm-hmm. figured his landscape photography were really not that interesting, at, at least in the beginning. And I didn't have that appreciation for nature, especially like I do now. Yeah. Uh, and so I started watching Tom's, Tom's videos a little bit more and really started to enjoy them more than I thought and really started to see the, uh, the potential, the potential beauty of nature and what you can really get when you get good light and when you get good uh, compositions and you really work for a shot. So with that in mind, I started photographing a lot of waterfalls, which initially really irritated my girlfriend because every single water, every single hike that we went to was to see waterfalls. Yeah. And you can imagine waterfalls typically, especially in Pennsylvania where I'm at, they don't always look all that interesting or different. They all kind of look the same when you go to them. 
And so she would be sitting there while I'm taking photographs of these waterfalls. And yeah, the composition may be different a little bit, but for the most part, she's like, it's flowing water. What's so great about it? <laughs> <laughs> I love photographing waterfalls. It's one of my favorite things. <laughs> oh, they're, they're great to photograph, but it, it, it kind of helps me to realize like, you know what, maybe there's a little bit more to nature photography than just waterfalls because we didn't really have in Pennsylvania there aren't aren't any big mountains there's mm-hmm. no big like ocean scenery or anything there are no grand vistas so yeah. you have to either love forest photography or you have to try and find something else to do yeah and so 2017 came along and I started photographing in black and white and then I started to slowly transition more into film photography mm-hmm. starting with a uh, Pentax Spotmatic 35mm that my grandfather had handed down to me. Nice. And used that for 2017 a little bit and realized, you know what, 35mm isn't going to give me the detail that I want for my photography. Mm -hmm. So while 35mm, for those who don't know, it's the same size sensor essentially as digital, but instead of a sensor, you have a strip of film. Right. And But the issue with that is that when you go to scan it, you can't necessarily get all the fine-tuned details, even when they use what's called a drum scanner. And mm-hmm. a drum scanner is a very high-resolution scan. It's the highest-resolution scan that you can get when okay. it comes to film. But even with that, the largest that you can print, because of the lack of detail, is about 24 inches width on the long mm-hmm. side. Okay. And it's really not a big print. You, you know what I mean? It's Yeah. So I decided to start going to medium format instead, and you get that medium format look that everybody's always after. Mm -hmm. But after a little while, I was realizing, you know what, I'm going out here with this medium format camera, and I'm I'm photographing, because in medium format, you have like 10 exposures. So you have 10 photographs that you can make. That's a lot to look around for 10 exposures. Yeah. And it's not even the weight of it or anything. It's a matter of, I wasn't able to find in one day, 10 compositions on a single yeah. hike. Because I typically will go out for a day and I'll hike around and see what I see and then go from there. Right. But I always wanted to come home, expose, or not expose, but develop my film and see what I got, see if I got any keepers. So at the end of each hike, I'd be really rushing trying to figure out, okay, I exposed five good compositions. Now I have five more exposures that I can do. How am I going to get this so I can complete a role without necessarily wasting a role? Right. And that became difficult. So I eventually I started to really enjoy Ben Horn's channel and he's all uh, large format. He uses an eight by 10 film camera. Mm-hmm. And so I started to really enjoy him and I, really started appreciating that slowed down type of photography. Yeah. So instead of rushing the other shot, I was now able with large format to just expose one sheet of film if I wanted to for a hike. Right. And then come home. And if I really wanted to see what I got, I could still develop that single sheet and not have to waste $5 of, of film each time. Right. That makes sense. So, yeah, I, that's pretty much how I got into into nature photography is just starting to find more appreciation for nature on a uh, 
on a photographic level, thanks to guys like Ben Horn and Thomas Heaton. Yeah, that's so great. Would you consider yourself a self-taught photographer then when you started down the whole photography path? Did you take any classes or was it mostly self-taught through YouTube videos and that sort of thing? For the most part, it was uh, self-taught videos. Um, yeah. I did take a class just kind of incidentally back in middle school. Uh, we had the option of, or it wasn't really an option that we had, but the school would either put you in a, uh, a woodworking class or they'd put you into photography class. Hmm. And it was still a digital photography class, but mm -hmm. it was an introduction to it. And luckily enough, I got into this photography class and the teacher is still a wedding photographer, wedding and portrait photographer from the area. Nice. Uh, so I learned really the basics from him, but it wasn't until another four or five years after that, that I started to relearn everything and pick the camera back up. So that, yeah. that having those fundamentals down because of that class definitely helped. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, in terms of learning better composition, better exposure and all of that, um, it's just through uh, watching YouTube videos and purchasing some videos from guys like Nick Carver or uh, other individuals like him that uh, have classes out there for you to watch and learn from. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, so you mentioned in, in uh, 2017, you started going uh, more into black and white rather than color photography. So um, what what sort of triggered that decision for you? And uh, my understanding from your looking at your portfolio and stuff is that you're exclusively shooting black and white now. So I'm curious, you know, why did you just decide to go black and white? And um, how has photographing in black and white now for a while changed how you approach your photography? Yeah, so black and white has always been something that's interesting me. I think it, the interest really started off between uh, looking at Ansel Adams photographs as every mm -hmm. landscape and photography uh, enthusiast will often say. Yeah. He, was, he was definitely the biggest influence on my work. Um, and just seeing what he could do with in tones of black and white was amazing to me. Yeah. Just where you didn't have to rely on some super colorful, beautiful sunset in order for your photographs to be visually astounding. Right. And that resonated with me quite a bit. And so I decided in 2017, I wanted to, I didn't feel as though I was challenged enough with landscape photography at the time. Mm -hmm. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to, instead of doing like a typical New Year's resolution of going to the gym or eating healthier or whatever that's not going to last, I decided to go ahead and challenge myself photographically to just shoot all of 2017 or as long as I could last in black and white. Hmm, interesting. And it ended up working and sticking a lot more than what I thought it would have. Yeah. Because Were you still shooting digital at that point or had you already transitioned to film? I was beginning on... I was in the very beginning of my transition to film, but if I was still shooting digital for the most part. And so yeah. I'd have to go into Lightroom, convert everything to black and white, and then go through my editing process from there. Yeah. But that was really just seeing Adam's work and just understanding how beautiful black and white can be and how much more abstract it is was really the catalyst for me uh, deciding to take on that challenge. Wow. Yeah. 
And so did it take a while to start seeing in tones and textures rather than just in colors? I still can't do it all the time. (laughs) (laughs) It it takes a lot of effort. I've been doing it for four years now. And I think even in another 20 years, if I'm still using a camera for photography or expressing myself through that manner, then it's it's still going to take me a while. There's still times where I'll go out into a scene. I'll be like, that's a really pretty composition. I could really do a lot with that. And but is it going to work well in black and white? Right. And so I'll pull out I'll pull out my phone and I'll take a photo and convert it to black and white quick and be like, and eh, maybe if I do it this way or expose it this way or whatever, then then maybe it'll work better. But it, right. it's tough. It's definitely there's a reason why a lot of people don't do it as much anymore because yeah. you no longer have to. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I've only dabbled a little bit uh, and I've been trying to, you know, practice doing black and white photography a little bit more recently to help me start to see tones and textures more readily just to try to train my eye to be paying attention to those things um, so that I have have the choice when I'm out in the field to be like, actually, this might, act, you know, be a better image as black and white rather than color. Right. Yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge. It's a worthwhile challenge because, like you said, you you get to see the world in a completely different manner yeah. that you naturally don't see that you don't pay attention to the tones as much or the textures in the scene. You're more so when you're looking at a scene, you're paying attention to the colors of it because that's right. the first thing that's going to grab your eye, especially if you have like in you're walking around in the forest and you have this bright red flower and it's just going to pop up at you because right. that's how our brains are trained because of finding berries and fruits in the in the wilderness when we were back millions of years ago as hunters and gatherers. Right. So it's very tough to kind of put that instinct aside and realize, okay, what else is to this scene that I can use in a photograph that's going to make it look good? Yeah. So what are sort of some of those things that you're looking for? The biggest thing that right now that I'm looking for in a scene is something that just catches my eye. Um, and it could be something as simple as the way that a tree bends in the forest that's different from the rest. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more so photographing things that have inner meaning to me at this point mm-hmm. in my life. Yeah. And a lot of those things tend to be intimate scenes on the ground. So the little rock formation on the ground, maybe, or little flowers that I saw find something along those lines. But as long as it, it You'll walk through the forest and you'll see something that just kind of calls out to you. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, now I have to go and try to make a composition of this because there's just, I can't explain it. There's no way to explain it, even to my girlfriend when she's right aside of me. She'll be yeah. looking at me and she'll be thinking, well, it's a rock. What's so great about that? <laughs> <laughs> but, but at the same time, it, it's just one of those things where I'm like, I just, I have that calling to photograph it. I need to photograph it and try and make it my own and do the best that I can with that. Yeah. Yeah, I totally get that. I'm not necessarily looking for anything specific while I'm out and about. Like, yeah, the grand, like seeing a waterfall coming across one that I wasn't expecting to see. Yeah, I'm more inclined to photograph that because it's a waterfall and it's it's something that's eye-catching. But it's a lot more of my work is just the intimate photography and that's it's the problem with it too because not as many not as many people can truly understand that and uh, make a connection to that 
So it makes mm-hmm. hard, makes it very difficult to try and sell your work too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand that as well. Um, I I live in Vermont, and and like Pennsylvania, there's not a lot of grand open wide open landscapes here. It's much more about the intimate scenes, and uh, and that's my preference too. It, like you, I'd much prefer to be in the middle of the woods and looking for those little nuggets, those little gems that kind of reveal themselves to you if you're paying attention. But it is hard because you're right. Like there is a customer base that that is drawn to that grand landscape, um, usually more than the small intimate scene. Are there things that you find like how light is playing on different things or shapes or lines or things like that? Do you find those are the things that are maybe that are, are drawing your eye or catching your eye when you're walking around? Yeah, I mean, a lot of times it, it is coming down to texture in a scene or um, just how the light, it's kind of a combination of all of those factors that maybe all of them at once are happening in a scene and it's just too good to be true in one of those deals where I just really need to work to photograph it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times it's just one of those aspects. So like the texture on a rock, like moss on a rock, that just the texture transition from real smooth rock to more of like a fuzzy textured uh, moss might look interesting. Mm-hmm. And so I'll work to try and photograph that. Or I'll be walking through the scene, through the forest, and a scene will pop up where there's just uh, a singular tree that's catching the light just right. Mm-hmm. And the rest of it around it is just dark. So I'll photograph that. Yeah, um, Light is definitely something that I found, especially after my recent trip to Acadia National Park, that I have to work a little bit harder with and mm-hmm. work more to really pay attention to the to the light around me and learn light a lot more than what I already know. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. definitely something that I have to work for. But I think that's something that every photographer has to work for when it comes to both light and composition. It's it's not something that just comes naturally. You master it and then you're good for the rest of your life. It's more so right. one of those it's more so one of those things where you have to continuously work and push yourself harder to create different compositions using different light and different ways of forms of light and all that in order to continue bettering yourself as an individual and as a uh, and as an artist yeah absolutely yeah i feel like it's a it's like the the beauty of it is that it is a lifelong evolution really you know the right the way you experience a scene or experience the light or um how you interpret it or what's going on in your world at that time that's going to make you feel a certain way at a certain time will change what kind of images you create over your lifetime, which is really great, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So I understand that you're, the large format camera that you're shooting with now is the Chamonix. Am I saying that right? Yeah, Chamonix. Chamonix 45 F2. And you have one lens, the Nikkor 210 millimeter lens. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why one lens, what does that give you? And maybe talk a little bit more about how large format photography differs from uh, a 35 millimeter equivalent in terms of differences in sensor size and how that affects your effective focal lengths and aperture and depth of field and stuff like that. Because there might be some people listening who are not familiar with large format photography. Yeah, I think a lot of people listening might not be. Uh, More and more People are seem to be getting into film these days, which is great for the film market. Mm-hmm. 
but it's it's definitely not as popular as it once was. So the camera that I'm using is essentially a folding box. It's you can really just handcraft a large format camera if you really wanted to, and a lot of people out there do because hmm. of making it cheaper. Yeah. So that's really the nice thing with it, but it's really just a light tight box. And you have bellows, which are like a cloth that extends or contracts in order to get your focus. Okay. And there are a lot more uh, factors to keep in mind when you're photographing with a large format camera versus something like a typical DSLR or even a medium format film camera. Mm -hmm. So you have to factor in your bellows extension most of the time, which as the bellows are extended further, they aren't able to collect as much light in the same amount of time. Sure. So you have yeah. to add time to your exposure in order to compensate for that properly, for the light to okay. get from the lens back to the film plane and expose the sheet of film. Yeah. So it's, a, it's definitely a lot more of a uh, laborious project to mm -hmm. be working with. Absolutely. Typically, when I come across a scene, I will... Um, really have to think about whether I want to pull the camera out and get to work setting it up. And if I do decide that, yeah, okay, it's worth it, I have to set up the tripod, make sure that the tripod head is level, and then set up the camera onto the tripod. And this whole process of setting up everything takes me anywhere from 10 minutes if I'm real fast to 20 or 25 minutes. Wow just for me to get everything right and the composition right. And the most difficult part, but it doesn't, after a while, it becomes a lot more natural, is you'll have, when you're looking at a scene on the back of the camera, it's upside down and reversed. Yes, that's right. I think I did know that. Wow, that's got to be a, a, a mind game. It is definitely a mind game at first because yeah. now all of a sudden what it, is at the top of the uh, the viewing glass is the bottom of the scene. Right. So to try and figure that out at first, it it can take you a bit. For me now, <laughs> for me now, I actually had to. I was watching, I think, a video from Ben, and he had made mention about that, and I'm like, wait a minute, is it? Because yeah. I, because since I've been doing this for a while, I'm like. I my mind automatically kind of flips it and I can see the image regularly. Wow, that's great. So I, I come across a scene, I'll do it, and I'm so used to it that it flips for me. And I'm like, I, just, I had to pull out my camera and set it back up. I'm like, oh, yeah, look at that. It, it It is actually flipped around like that. It's weird. Yeah, that's so interesting that your brain can compensate with practice. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so so the other nice thing with, large format is you have a lot of movements is what they call them. So a lot of people I'm sure know about tilt shift lenses. They're used a lot for architecture photography mm -hmm. where you can tilt the, uh, the plane of focus back and forth and uh, side to side. Right. And what that helps you to do is especially working in the forest, the reason that you want your camera level completely is because of the trees or any vertical objects in your scene. So, I see, yeah. Because otherwise what's going to happen is they'll either widen out at the top 
or they'll converge at the top, depending. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And by keeping your camera level, instead, if you want to look up in the scene more, you can just bring the front of the camera up a little bit without actually moving the camera itself. So you're moving the, um, the front plane of the, where the lens sits, the lens board. I see. So that you're able to move up and down or you're able to tilt it back and forth in order to get greater depth of field and greater focus. So there, there really are a lot of benefits to shooting large format, mm -hmm. but you have to understand the, there are a lot of downsides too because you're working with a lot heavier of a camera. Right. It's a lot slower of a camera as well. Slower meaning um, in terms of effective aperture and how fast of a shutter speed you can use. Is that what you mean? Or just in terms of the time setting everything up? Pretty much everything. I mean, when yeah. you're photographing large format, I think most of the time my apertures are around F32. Yeah. Cause so can you talk a little bit about that? You know, people might find that to be a little bit confusing. What, how is aperture and depth of field sort of different in a large format camera? I think it has to do with because of the film being so large that you have to really stop down your lens in order to cover the entire four by five inch uh, piece of film, the effective sensor, so to speak. I see. So instead of shooting at f8 like you would on digital, you're going to be shooting at something like f22 or f32, which if you try to do that with digital, you'll start to get into diffraction zone. Right. But with large format, you there is diffraction. A lot of people don't seem to understand that as much. Even those who have been photographing for a while, there is still diffraction with a lens. You can't avoid that. Mm -hmm. But because of there being so much detail in the scene and so much more going on, it's not as noticeable right away. Mm -hmm. And it takes a little bit longer, especially in black and white. You're not necessarily going to notice the diffraction that you would, which right. definitely helps. Yeah. So what is the, the narrowest aperture you can get on the, on the Nikkor lens that you use? I can go up to, I think it's uh, F64. Okay. I think it's the largest. I've never had a reason to shoot that at that aperture because I don't need that much depth in my photos. Yeah. Typically when you're shooting with, um, with four by five large format, you're, your best aperture, so they say, is f22 and f32. Okay. And that's for the most part that'll cover the depth that you want for your scene. Um, and this is for small scenes or for landscapes as well? This is for anything, yeah. I see. So you get a, a pretty deep depth of field at f32 or so. Right, yeah. In terms of going back a little bit for the uh, why I only use one lens. Yeah. I originally started off with both a 75mm um, a Nikkor and a 210mm Nikkor. And to put those into perspective of your typical DSLR lenses, you're looking at about a 24mm and a little bit longer than a 50mm, probably around like 60mm okay. for the 210. So initially I got those lenses because I was going down to... South Carolina to Charleston, and I wanted something wide enough that I could photograph the Angel Oak. Because even though it's an icon and I'm not normally photographing icons, I wanted to get a photograph of it since 
I'm there. It's not going to take long anyway. Right. So I needed something wide. So that's why I picked up the 75. And then the 210, I just wanted as a little bit longer than a normal lens, normal 50 millimeter lens. What ended up happening though is I found myself using the 210 more and more and more. And the 75 just kind of got stuck in my bag and was just adding weight to it. Mm-hmm. And you already have right now with my one lens and my camera, some a couple film holders and the gear that I need, I have about 25 pounds on my back. Oh, wow. When I'm hiking around. There's ways That's to limit. Yeah, there's ways to limit that. There's a camera company over in the UK called uh, Intrepid. Mm-hmm. And they make real lightweight 4x5s. And that's originally what I started on, but I didn't find their quality at the time, at least with the camera that I got. I can't speak for all of them. Yeah. But with the camera that I got, it started to fall apart a little bit. And I'm not, I kind of abuse my cameras a little bit. I don't, I treat them like the tools that they are. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're tools for me. I can replace them if I need to. I don't want to because they're expensive, but at yeah. the end of the day, I'd much rather get the shot and ruin a camera than not get the shot. Yeah. So I found myself using this 210 lens and just decided to take the 75 out of my bag completely, which lowered the weight of the bag by at least a little bit. And initially, I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to sell this because I don't use it ever. I go around a scene in a forest and I see how I can typically see the compositions from that would correlate with 210 millimeters. Mm-hmm. So that's, your, that's of, like your sweet spot, it sounds like. Right, yeah. So instead of having to guess how much of the scene is going to be in my, in my composition with a certain lens, I can now see it when just walking up to it and I can know exactly where I want to plant that tripod, yeah. which definitely helps in terms of setting everything up, right. limiting some time with that uh, already lengthy process. Yeah. If you ever need to adjust your composition by moving, you know, a foot or two in either direction, you've got to re-level everything and, and all of that, I imagine, right? Yep. It definitely becomes a little bit of a pain because then yeah. you'll get the camera set up, you'll get focus set up just right. And then you realize, you know what, there's a little branch sticking in and I need to get rid of that. So let's move right. to the left. And now all of a sudden I have to not necessarily redo everything, but I have to take the camera off the tripod, re-level the tripod and then put it back on and make sure nothing in terms of focus or anything changed. Right. So you, you mentioned before that the bellows adjusts the focus and that depending on the length of it, that changes your shutter speed time. So are you measuring the bellows or is there like a scale on it? And do you have like a table that you follow or do you need to do some sort of calculation to figure out what your shutter speed should be at that point? So to be honest, no. Okay. Um, it's You're supposed to, when it comes to large format, you're supposed to measure the bellows and then figure out essentially with a chart or some guys have it memorized because of doing it for so long. You're supposed to figure out the bellows extension factor, and then it's typically like maybe one and a half times the metered exposure or something sim- something simple like that. So you can go ahead and then you can do that in your head and figure that out. For all the time that I've been photographing with film in general and then with large format, because some medium format cameras have 
bows as well that you should be doing that with. A lot mm-hmm. of uh, TLR cameras, the ones that uh, Vivian Myers used for a lot of self-portraits and such, mm-hmm. those typically have bows as well. And you should still, those have a nice little chart on the side that'll tell you the bows extension factor. I but see. with large format, you don't have that. So you have to do that calculation. But I've never found that my exposures are that off with even the bellows extended completely all the way out at an intimate scene on the ground hmm. in order to get that focus. Yeah. So I've never, I've never really messed around with it. The only thing that I do make sure to do is uh, what they call reciprocity failure. Okay. And what happens with that is, let's see if I can get this right from what I remember. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard of it. Yes, essentially, it's when you go into the long exposure range of for film. Since you can't necessarily boost your ISO unless you go through development times, right? You can change it a little bit, but for the most part, you're going to keep it if it, the film is rated at ISO 100. Typically, shoot at ISO 100. Mm-hmm. And so, when you get towards dusk, or when you get to times where you need a little bit longer of an exposure, certain films can't handle that exposure as well. They can't collect that light as easily after a certain amount of time. Hmm. So you have to... Does it make it more like of a hazy effect or something? It gets more grainy or something? It's not necessarily that it affects the film. It just can't collect the light as well. I see. At least from my basic understanding of it. Yeah. So you have to go on to the manufacturer of the film's website and... Typically, they'll have uh, reciprocity failure uh, charts or calculations that you can do. I see. And so after, I think the film that I'm using, it's about any exposure longer than four seconds. So if your metered exposure is four seconds for a scene, Mm -hmm. for my film, it's four seconds is eight seconds that you have to expose before. And then five seconds metered is, I think, like, 10 or 12 seconds and it kind of goes in a pattern in a sort of pattern like that i see and it helps the film to further collect more light and to properly expose the scene as it should be exposed if it right. were earlier on in the day gotcha there is a so you're film, talking about uh, metering the light or is it the light meter you use is this measuring reflected light or incident light i'm using a spot meter so okay. it's uh reflecting light within, I believe it's a one degree spot that I put that circle on. Gotcha. And so that helps me to get a very accurate meter reading. So I'll go ahead in the forest and I'll measure the darkest parts of my scene and get a Mm -hmm. meter reading for that. I'll measure um, the mid-tones where I want essentially to be neutral. Yeah. And then I'll measure the highlights and I'll take those three measurements and use, um, it's a method called precision metering method. It was uh, invented, in a sense, by Nick Carver. And he has an amazing uh, amazing video class on that where I learned how to really properly meter everything with film. Uh, so for those interested, I definitely would recommend taking that. Yeah, I can find a link and put it in the show notes. I, I have seen a couple of his videos on, on YouTube and they're really good. Yeah, he's definitely got a, a great sense of humor, but he's extremely educational as well. He's very yeah. informative. Uh, so I definitely would recommend checking that out if you have 
any interest in learning how to properly meter film because it completely changed my way of of metering a scene and of seeing a scene. Hmm. So interesting. I'll go ahead and use that system to come up with my uh, my basic exposure in the for the for the photograph. Mm-hmm. So you you know we've been talking a little bit about how the large format photography is really laborious and time intensive and so do you end up spending a lot of time scouting locations and sort of making a note of okay here's a potential composition that might work under a different set of conditions like fog or light or whatever so that you can when those conditions arise you can get back there without just sort of wandering around looking for compositions with all the gear i wish i was more like that (laughs) Um, i i would love to be able to do some of what these guys do where they're checking seven different apps on their phones to try and figure, to pinpoint the weather and when the fog is going to roll in for a certain area and to be able to go out there prior and have scene after scene already scouted so you can just go out, get those scenes done, come home and be done by mid-morning. Right. I mean, I, I think that would be great. But a lot of my photography, for the most part, is reactionary. Yeah. So I'll go out to a scene and whatever just pulls me its way. I'll just go with my gut and photograph that when it's time right. Because you, I think when you go and you, and this is just my opinion on it, but when you go and you're putting all that work into a single composition, you miss out on a lot. I mean, there's so much beauty in the world or in a, even a small area of woodland that by focusing and putting all of your effort into one scene, you're missing out on a lot of different potential scenes that mm-hmm. might work for that day, for that, yeah. that current light. And I'd much rather get those scenes than put all my effort into one scene that could end up failing. Right. That you could miscalculate things or could mess something up and it's going to end up... Uh, just not working out how you had hoped. So now you're all of a sudden, instead of going home with successful photograph because you reacted to the scene, you're going home with a failed photograph because that you just put a ton of effort on it and it doesn't feel as good. Right. Yeah. No, I get that too. I, I'm much more of a in the moment when I have the time <laughs> kind yeah. of photographer. You know, I don't, the way my life is currently, I, I don't necessarily get time to just sort of go out whenever I want. You know, it's sort of when I get to. Exactly. And so then it's just embracing, okay, well, it's a beautiful sunny day. It's great for hiking. Maybe not so great for photography, but what kind of photographs can I make anyway, you know? Or even just going out and, yeah, you may be logging a camera around, but you're able to enjoy nature as it is without right. having to really be focusing on anything. And that that uh that idea has completely changed my way of photography in general. Uh, it, it's really helped me to enjoy photography for what it is, but also to really learn to appreciate on a deeper level my time spent in nature, whether it's by myself or with my girlfriend or with other friends or whoever. I'm able to go out and really enjoy everything for what it is versus going out and having a dead set focus of, okay, now I need to get a photograph. And if I don't get a photograph, I'm a failure. Right. And that that goes back into the mental health aspect too, because that could be detrimental. If, If you're suffering from depression or anxiety and you're trying to make this into 
photography or art into a coping mechanism, now all of a sudden you're you're dead set on getting a photograph and you're in that mindset of, if I don't get this photograph, am I even a good photographer? Right, yeah. Like, should I even bother coming out with my camera? Like, and it, and it starts to really, you can beat down on yourself a lot because of that. And yeah, you can really crush. Very, yeah, you can crush yourself with it. Yeah. Under that kind of pressure. So I just, I started to really just go out, even if I do bring my camera, and I typically still do because sometimes it will take maybe an hour, maybe two hours into a hike, but I'll finally start to really feel good because of just enjoying my time in nature. And then moments and more meaningful scenes or something of the sort will start to show themselves to me instead of me looking for them. Right. Yeah, I, I can t- completely relate with that. I, I feel like when I go hiking, even even before I got m- more into photography, I've always been an avid hiker. And for me, that's always been part of the mental health part of it for me was to be out in nature. And I've always felt like the first 45 minutes of the hike, my brain just was blah, 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 blah. It was like the hamster wheel, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then about that moment of 45 minutes in, I'd realize I don't have any thoughts. It's so (laughs) nice. I'm just here. I'm now noticing things. And it would be that second half of the hike that was that rejuvenating and healing time to just be and appreciate and be grateful to be able to do that, you know? Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest helps for that in order to change my mindset more towards a nature focused and journey focused rather than destination focused um, was earlier this year I decided you know what I'm just there's a local park by me not too maybe like 15 minutes away from me 15 mm-hmm. minute drive and I uh, I decided you know what I'm just going to start to go here for a month or two every weekend or every other weekend and bring my camera with see what I can see but and just kind of challenge myself in the sense of enjoying my time out in nature and not worrying about the photographic possibilities there. Yeah. And that definitely helped because in this park specifically, at least for me, I don't see a lot of photographic possibilities. So it's very difficult for me to go there and, uh, and really expect to come back with anything because I know that there isn't going to be much. Mm-hmm. And so that's definitely helped me to kind of alter my, my perception of, photography and the balance that it has with nature. Yeah. Yeah. Just changing your expectations around it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, some film photographers who process their own images believe that the image is created at the time of capture, whereas others believe that the image is created in the dark room using various exposure techniques to get a desired effect. And so I'm curious, you know, how are you approaching your development process maybe you could talk to us a little bit about what that's like and also i'm curious you know what are your final prints made of typically are you are you using a certain kind of paper or another type of medium to uh showcase your photography i think everybody has people have to realize that everybody's process is going to be different so there's no true right or wrong way of doing anything Mm -hmm. there are photographers out there who think that kind of like you said that it's at the point of capture that's it that's the scene, no more work done to it. And this goes both for digital and film. You have it yeah. in both communities. And unfortunately, you have a lot of people who bash on each other because they think that their 
their process is set in stone and that's the way to do it and there's no other right way to do it but that's not true right and so for me i kind of i would absolutely love to get into the dark room and have the space and the time to make all of my prints and spend all day in the dark room like guys like ansel adams have done in the past yeah but the reality of that is it, i can't make it work right now so instead i have a hybrid process so i'll go ahead and i'll develop my film and i have certain time that i use for development for fixer and for washing in order to develop it in a way that is as uh, kind of as flat of a piece of film and a photograph as possible so i'm maintaining as much detail in the scene as possible mm -hmm. so then i'll go ahead i'll let that film dry and i'll throw it onto my flatbed scanner that i have and I just picked up a uh, an Epson V850 scanner. I just upgraded from the V600 that I used to have, which is gonna, which definitely helps me to get better scans and a lot sharper of scans. So mm -hmm. I'll go ahead and I'll scan that, bring it into the computer, bring it into Photoshop, and then I'll edit it essentially like I did a digital photograph. I see. So I'll use tone curves and. Uh, level adjustments but i don't do much to my work i just bring it up to a point where it looks on a computer screen how it did with when i was out actually photographing it, it still puts across that meaning that right. i want it to put across yeah in terms of printing then i'm just using a um the canon pro 100 uh printer so the largest okay. that i can print on that is uh 13 inches wide by however long I want to do it. Right. Typically, I'm using uh, Hannah Mule's Photo Rag 308 GSM paper, mm -hmm. which is a matte finished paper that's just very, very sturdy paper, but it's also very, uh, really nice representation of how I want my work to look. Mm -hmm. And most of my prints, when I do them, at least nowadays, they're typically eight by eight inch prints because of photographing square. And I like having that intimacy where you can hold that print up to your hand or in your hands and really get close to it if you want. Or you can look at it on a wall from a little bit further away and still it can change the meaning or how you see the image as a whole. Mm -hmm. And I really like that, uh, the delicacy that you get with such a small print. So t tell us about your decision to go square versus staying in the four by five aspect ratio. And has that changed how you compose in the field or, or is it um, like, I actually don't know if you're converting to square during the development process or that's something you've changed in your camera so that it actually is exposing the film in a square format. Yeah. So I went ahead and when I ordered the Chamonix, 45 f2 that i got i talked to hugo who is the uh the owner of the company over in china and who uh, oversees all the handcrafting of these cameras and i asked him to essentially make dash marks on the ground glass where you the viewing glass that you look through uh that designated a four inch by four inch square in the middle of the, mm. of the where the film would be okay so that definitely helps with uh, figuring out my composition because I know exactly where that's going to be. I just have my camera set up vertically all the time 
Mm-hmm. And I can see that square and compose it properly. And then if I really want to, I can still use the full four by five inch piece of film right. as like a vertical crop, or I can change it to be horizontal if I really feel that way. But I got into uh, square compositions because I wanted to kind of tap into the minimalist, more uh, simplistic style of nature photography, especially the style that uh, Michael Kenna kind of popularized back when he first uh, began and became uh, more well-known for his work. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea of being able to go to a scene and really break it down into its the roots of what it is without having as much distraction. I mean, you really can't argue that a square composition is, there's something about it that's just so much simpler. Even if it's a very busy, chaotic scene, there's just a, a tinge of simplicity of minimalism to it that it just looks different. Yeah. And well, in the, you know, three by two or four by five, you know, different aspect ratios that our cameras have is somewhat arbitrary, you know, that we've been sort of confined to that aspect ratio traditionally in photography. And so why not explore other aspect ratios if they convey the message more effectively or a, an emotion that you're trying to express in an image? Yeah, I mean, it, it really comes just down to individual choice again, just like with the editing of your work. I mean, if you decide that a 4 by 23 crop is going to be just what you want for a scene, then go for it. There's no way saying that you can't do an odd crop like that. Or if you decide that you see best in a standard crop like 4 by 5 then go for that. I just found that the square scene, for some reason, just called out to me and I, instead of fighting it, I decided to say, you know what, I'm just going to go with it and uh, see what happens. Like, yeah, it kind of sucks that I'm wasting a good inch of my film in order to crop it like that. But at the end of the day, it's not as though I can't go back through my uh, my archives, pull that back up, rescan it, and then maintain all that detail with a 4 by 5 if I want to. Right. Because I'm not... That's and that's why I don't do it in in camera or uh, in developing. I just do it through Photoshop. I'll crop mm-hmm. because of that, those markings being right in the middle of the film. I can just take that crop tool, put it to one to one, and it's right there in the middle of the film. And I can move it up or down to side and dependent on on whether I think the composition I made in the field could have been worked on a little bit better, a little bit better if I would have grown up the scene down or up a little more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like playing around with the crop tool for that purpose too, to, to just realize like, oh, okay, next time I think this makes a stronger composition. If I had just moved slightly here, or recomposed a little bit there, I find that that exercise can be helpful too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I, I saw on your website that there's a lot of different photographers who've inspired your work, including Clyde Butcher, who I actually had featured as a highlighted photographer in one of my Outdoor Photography School Digests, which is a, a monthly newsletter that I started this year. And Clyde was recommended by one of our readers, and I w- had not known of his work prior to that. 
But what fascinated me was his process for manually printing these gigantic uh, large scale images, which is kind of the opposite direction of what what you've decided to do with your images by going into these uh, small eight by eight format. And so I'm I'm curious, what is it about Clyde's work that inspires you? It's a matter of between his decision to go black and white and to maintain his that decision throughout so many years, ever since his uh, son had died. Mm-hmm. And giving up color completely and deciding to challenge himself in with black and white, that was definitely a, a heavy inspiration point for me. Yeah. But it was also a mix, too, of um, how he had focused his entire career thus far to one area in the world that, for the most part, you don't most people, when they think of going on vacation, don't think, oh, let's go to the Everglades. Like, yeah, that's going to be fun. <laughs> it's, it's Getting by so, crocodiles. <laughs> yeah, really. It's like, who can't wait to go wade in the waters, waist deep, and kick up a bunch of crocodiles that are trying to nest? Right. Like, I can't wait to do that. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a place that I want to visit, but I'm also adventurous and crazy enough to go and wade in the waters like that. But. Yeah. Most people, when they think of of going on vacations, they're thinking of a place like Yosemite or Joshua Tree National Park or even Acadia National Park. They're not thinking of the Everglades. And for someone like Clyde to have spent his entire life not only photographing in this area and living there, but also working so hard and pushing so hard to be an environmentalist for this area. Yeah. It was just so inspiring to to learn his story and to learn why he loves this area so much and to see the photographs that he's able to capture in this area because he knows it so well. Right. And so that's, that's the biggest inspiration that I've gotten from him because instead of seeing, I've, I've never really been a fan of Pennsylvania because I just think the state's kind of boring and lackluster compared to a lot of others. Mm Mm-hmm. But over the years, I've started to really begin to see the infinite beauty of that. And that has to do a lot because of Clyde's work. And I, yeah. I mean, it's not just Clyde that has inspired me so much. There, there are so many different photographers out there that I've taken little tidbits of inspiration, some more than others, yes. But nonetheless, there are so many that have inspired me in various ways and influenced my work. So who, who who are some others that uh, anyone that you would recommend that people check out? The first guy that I'm going to recommend for sure that I think any photographer, whether you're digital, whether you're film, portrait, whatever you shoot, I highly recommend sitting down and reading some of the articles from Guy Tall. Yes. He's a uh, Utah-based photographer. And his writing is, he writes a lot about, for those who don't know, uh, psychology and uh, creativity, the way that we see a scene and how composition works in a true manner. Mm-hmm. One of the articles that you just recently put out is a two-part series on uh, on composition and how we actually see a scene because we don't see, we don't come up to a scene and uh, our eyes don't work in the way that we thought they did with right. rule of thirds or with leading lines or any of that. Those are just arbitrary rules that people have 
clung to for one reason or another that in all honesty it's hurting your creativity it's hurting mm-hmm. your photography so i i highly recommend checking out his not only his writing but also his work because he's the one who has influenced me the absolute most over the past two years i've transitioned from photographing more of the grand vistas and the waterfalls to photographing things that mean something to me mm-hmm. versus things that are going to be popular with other people. Right. Yeah. I have his book, uh, More Than a Rock, which I was thinking of when you had said before that you were drawn to different things in a, in a woodland, like a rock and your girlfriend would be like, well, it's just a rock. <laughs> and the title of his book, it's more than a rock. <laughs> yeah. Flashed yeah. My brain. Yeah. That, that is a great book for sure. Uh, yeah. I'm looking forward to his next one that he has coming out uh, that he's going to be uh, releasing pre-orders for pretty soon. It's on his website. Yeah, I'll definitely link to that in the show notes so people can check it out. In terms of other photographers, of course, like I mentioned before, there's uh, Ben Horn, who influenced me to go, inadvertently influenced me to go start photographing with film and then with large format and they're really slowing down in my scenes and paying more attention to nature. Mm-hmm. Um, Thomas Heaton was the catalyst for me going into nature photography. And then I had mentioned uh, Michael Kenna, of course, who was uh, the reason for me seeing the beauty of uh, not only darker landscape photography, darker photography in general, mm-hmm. but also the uh, what you could do with a square composition. Right. And I mean, there are so many photographers out there that, that inspire me in one way or another, but it's a long list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm always finding more. There's, there's so much, even from whether you're a super popular photographer or someone just like how I am, where I'm not real well known, but you, there's still things that you can learn from everybody, even those that are just starting out. Absolutely. They're seeing yeah. things in such a novel way that it's like, wow, I never thought that I would see a scene this way because of going through a hike or seeing your photography with you. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what what would you say that you're trying to express or, or reflect with your images is it specific to the scene or the moment you're taking it and how you're feeling? Or is there sort of like an underlying theme that you, that you kind of go towards in, in ex- expressing yourself in your photography? There's, it's tough to answer because each scene is so different for me to come across. I think at the end of the day, I'm just trying to express a little bit of myself as I change as an individual. Uh, throughout the years in each of my photographs mm-hmm. and just trying to trying to show the world really how I see nature around me and see the world around me. Um, there's no real underlying message, at least none that I can figure out if somebody comes across my work and says, oh yeah, this is your underlying message, like some hotshot psychologist kind of deal. By all <laughs> means, I'd love, I'd love to know. If you right. if you can figure me out, then by all means, send me an email, please. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but no, there, it's just what I find to be meaningful in the moment is really just how I kind of go about my photography. I don't try and put a lot of thought into into technical 
into technicalities or into uh, into anything in general. I'm just kind of having fun with it at this point. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, it should be fun first and foremost, I would say. Oh, for sure. Yeah. If you're not yeah. having fun with it, then find something else to do. If it's just stressing you out that much or taking a toll on you mentally, then put it aside for a little while. There's no yeah. harm in that. I mean, yeah. just even if you if you're a landscape photographer and you're finding that it's just too much for you to take your camera with you all the time and try and force a scene to be found, then leave your camera at home or in the car. Yeah. Park up and just go for a walk. See what you see and don't worry about getting a professional photograph of it. Take your phone out when you see a scene that interests you and then go from there. If that if after the end of the day you decide, you know what, let's go back to this scene or these three scenes and with the actual camera, then do that. But Yeah. There's there's no reason to uh to let this stress yourself stress you out so much. And, and yeah, I understand I totally agree. I understand for those that are making trying to make a living off of it. Like yeah, I mean it's definitely a stressful job and I've I've been trying to push for that, but it's also one of those deals where it's gonna be a slow progression. So unless you're okay shooting family portraits or doing commercial photography for everything for your living and then doing landscape photography on the side, then it can be tough. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a tough career for sure. When you have that kind of pressure, it can be hard to keep the creative juices flowing. And I actually recently published an episode, episode 10, and I gave five different exercises that people can try to, if they're feeling like they're in a photography rut or a creative rut and that sort of thing. And and one of my suggestions is just leave the camera at home <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you know, and after if you find that once you're back out in nature and you start seeing things and you wished that you had your camera with you, then that's a good sign that your eyes are starting to see things again. And, you know, it might be time to get the camera back out. But it's a great challenge. It is. Yeah. It's one of those things that I definitely have to uh, start doing more for myself of just because it just teaches you to see things in a different way too, where you don't have that pressure on your back right? where you need to take a photograph where you feel the camera is why they bring it. If I'm not going to take a photograph, right? <laughs> <laughs> why am I lugging this heavy backpack around throughout the entire hike? If I'm not going to break it out at least once to take a photograph. And so if you don't bring it, just load your bag up with snacks or something instead. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, and More just water. Go, yeah, just go ahead, sit down somewhere at a scene that you find and just enjoy it for the beautiful scene that it is. Right. Without having to have that kind of pressure of taking a photograph. I think that's definitely something that, uh, that every landscape or nature photographer, any photographer in general, could uh, really benefit from that. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, your, your eyes are always going to be working to, you're always going to be pointing out compositions. And it's tough even sitting in the room where I'm sitting now. I I can look around and find hundreds of little compositions. Of, it's just in a little uh, bedroom that I'm sitting in here. Yeah. But, so you're always going to be practicing that those skills, whether you have a camera with you or not. So just practice them without a camera here and there. It'll yeah. help for sure. Yeah. And then you're not worrying about exposures and, and all that. You can just enjoy it and, and note it and take those mental images. And come back to it another day if you really want to. If you find a scene that was just mind blowing, then yeah, come back to it then. 
Yeah, yeah. So I understand that you deleted your Instagram account in 2019, which I think some people listening might be tempted to do to, you know, reduce the digital noise in their lives, but also have sort of mixed feelings about it because they feel like leaving the platform would maybe be a potentially bad marketing move as a photographer. So I'm curious, what made you decide to leave? And and do you have any regrets saying goodbye? (laughs) So it was actually in the end of 2020 that I had gotten rid of it. And I didn't necessarily delete it. It's still there. Uh, They have a function where you can, I think it's like disabling it or something. So if I log back into it, everything comes back up. I come back up live on Instagram again, my same name and all of that. I didn't want to delete it because if I do decide down the road that I want to come back to it, that my mind is ready to come back to it and I'm mentally strong enough to do so, um, then I didn't want to have to start from scratch. Yeah. I wanted to maintain my username and maintain some of the photographs and the following that I had on there. So I decided to just disable it for the beginning of 2021. And I caught myself going back onto it here and there in the beginning. But for the most part, for a good month now, I've been off both uh, Instagram and on Facebook. I've Mm -hmm. been off of both of them. And it's it's kind of freeing. I mean, I would find myself sitting down at work or sitting at home after dinner and all that, trying to relax. And instead of reading a book or writing something, I'd be scrolling for hours just on Instagram. And I'd be feeling terrible about myself and just taking such a toll on my mentality because I'd see all this beautiful work from from these different photographers all over the world that were being recommended to me or that I was following. Yeah. And I was thinking, these guys are so much better than me. Like, why am I, do I even have a right to pick up a camera anymore? Yeah. Oh, I know. It's, it's so off. The comparisonitis is so bad for mental health and. It's terrible. I mean, I'd, yeah. I'd sit there and I'd be like, why am I even doing this when there are, hundreds of these guys out there that are so much better that I'll never get to their level. And you start to see your work and devalue it. You start to really just, instead of seeing it for what it is and seeing it as your own personal vision of a scene or of an area or whatever, you start to think, wow, I suck. I shouldn't be, I shouldn't be doing this. Like I, I should just go ahead and sell my camera gear and find another hobby that I could actually be good at. But, <laughs> but that's that's such a wrong way to think of it. And it is. And when you go on Instagram or any social media platform like that, and you're and you're seeing these other people get hundreds of likes for something that even something that you don't think is all that great, that you sh- is like, okay, it's a snapshot. And then you post something that you think that you're really proud of and that you love and you think is like a piece of art onto that platform. Now, all of a sudden you get 10 likes and you're like, why'd they get so many? Right. So that's really, that was really the catalyst for me getting off of that, of social media, just the comparison of it all was just becoming too much. And it wasn't even like I, because of that, I really didn't post much either. Yeah. I just kind of, I post once a week, maybe I, I tried to boost my following and by posting every single day for months on end, 
and it didn't do anything because it, whatever the algorithm is, however that's set up, uh, it just wasn't being beneficial to me. So I said, you know what, 2021, I'm going to start fresh a little bit here and just kind of get rid of it because it wasn't helping me with my business at all. Yeah. It was, there was no benefit to it for me. The only benefit was that I was able to keep up with the other photographers that I followed. But at the same time, most of the photographers I followed on there were like Ben Horn or Simon Baxter, where they had YouTube channels that they'd upload to and newsletter lists that I could go on to. So I could right. still keep up with them just at a slower pace. Right. And Which yet, it helps you appreciate their work even more, you know, right. instead of just scrolling right past it. Right. You're not seeing everything all at once. You're, you get to see the journey of it more or you get to see the really focus on a piece after a little bit. It's like a surprise in your email that, oh, yeah, this guy exists. Right. I, I could see his work and really delve into it a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of just flicking by and thinking, oh, yeah, double tap. That's nice. And you continue on. You don't appreciate it as much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. If it's just sapping your energy and creative juices and all of that, and it's not, and, and it's actually having even a deleterious effect because of the comparisons that can, that we all do, you know, it's just, I think human nature, um, that's probably a good idea just to kind of shut that off for a little while. Yeah. I mean, even if it's just a week that you take, that you decide, you know what, let's take a break for a week or for even a day. Yeah, just sit back, find something else to do. It, it's tough at first too. It you, is. Your thumb gets itchy, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's tough because you you go, you pull out your phone. Like I don't have any games on my phone. I keep my phone very utilitarian because that's how I like it. Yeah, I don't want to have to think about uh, being distracted on it. I'd much rather sit and grab my Kindle or grab a piece of paper and do some writing or reading, and. So I think the biggest tip that I could give anyone who is looking to get off their phone more and maybe read or do something else more is change the location of your phone. Mm-hmm. So instead of having your phone in your like front right pocket or in a certain section of your purse, take that out and switch it out with your Kindle or a book or a, uh, a notepad or something of that sort. Because then when you go to reach for it, you think, oh, this isn't what I wanted, mm, but I guess mm-hmm. I'll do this instead. Right. And you start That's to build idea. that habit and then it eventually will become habitual where you can replace and put your phone back in that pocket or back in that spot and still reach for your Kindle or your whatever else that you want to do without yeah. having to uh, worry about it. Because then you were like, I'm using this time instead, if you're reading, to learn. To expand your knowledge, even if you're reading fiction books, you're still learning something. You're still taking something away or fulfilling your mind in a much more intellectual manner than just randomly scrolling or playing Angry Birds or whatever on your phone. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah, games on your phone and all that are great and fun, but they don't challenge your mind in the same way that uh, that a book will, even if it's something simple or uh, something basic, so to speak like Harry Potter or one of those books where you don't think that you're going to learn anything from them, but there's still a lot to take away. Yeah. And it's exercising your imagination sometimes too, you know, and that, that definitely helps. Oh, that's huge for photography or for any kind of art form. You constantly want to be uh, 
helping to expand your creativity in any way that you can. And like I said, even something like reading can help to do that in a in a pretty positive manner. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Um, well, before we, we wrap things up here, are you up for doing a lightning round? Sure. Let's try it out. <laughs> okay. No overthinking. I'll try. Okay. Uh, so what's your favorite subject to photograph? Woodland. All right. Me too. Although I, it's so hard. I, I always, Gosh. I still haven't really gotten a woodland scene myself that I, that I really like. So I'm I've still gotten, working on that. I've gotten a few, but they're, it's very tough. It's definitely it is. a challenge. It really is. Very chaotic. What I'm trying to capture is the essence and I, I've struggled with that so far. So I'm still, still working on Especially it. Especially down here in Pennsylvania, we don't get much fog. So trying to come into a woodland scene without having much atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah, it's rough. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, in your opinion, what's the best light to photograph in? Any light that's available. Whatever the scene it. looks good in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the benefit to black and white too. I mean, black and white, you can make look good in the middle of the day, harshest daylight that you get, depending on how you go about it. So right. the greatest benefit to it. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Would you rather photograph nature or just be in nature? These days, be in nature. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one. I I think I agree. I think I'd rather be in nature. Yeah, I don't. These days, I don't need a camera with me anymore. I mean, if I, I take it with me because I still love photography and I love the process of it, especially using large format. But yeah, I, I'd be just okay just enjoying nature, writing about it, doing that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of that, why photography and not another art form? Or have you tried other art forms? We really haven't tried any other art forms. I mean, I do some abstract kind of painting, splattering paint on a canvas and calling it art. (laughs) (laughs) But photography was just kind of, I had background knowledge in it. And so Mm -hmm. I decided, you know what, let's just try this out. And if it doesn't stick, I... I think I spent like $300 or $500 on my first camera. So I'm like, if it doesn't stick yet, it's a lot of money. But at the end of the day, I didn't put much effort into it. So I'm able to switch around if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. And what does connecting with nature mean to you? Oof. Well, it's tough to really get to. Um, I, I grew up around nature. I mean, we have this... We have family property up in northern Pennsylvania, and my grandparents bought it back 37 years ago almost, or 35 years ago, something like that. Nice. Um, and we're surrounded by woodland and nature. And so, like I said, I grew up in this area almost, and just from coming up here for family vacations all the time. So, I've always had a connection to nature that was just more than I think most people have these mm-hmm. days. And especially as I'm getting older now and starting to really learn about myself more, I'm starting to realize that, yeah, nature is just, there's something about it that is just so calming and so just enjoyable to to be in. And Mm -hmm. we need nature in our lives because it provides so much life to us and we provide so much life to to, to it. Mm-hmm. And there, there's that balance that you have to uh, maintain. And it's kind right. of, a, it's a really harmonious experience just walking through the woods. Yeah, I think that's a great, a great word, harmonious. The more I think people can 
experience that type of harmony with nature and and spending time out in it, the more people will hopefully respect it and appreciate it and want it to to last forever. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it's great. Like 2020 was great because, in the simple sense that more and more people got out into nature and started to to kind of appreciate it more. And I, I hope that sticks around, but in a cleaner, less, uh, I don't know the right word for it, but less damaging way to nature because there was a lot of littering and a lot of uh, writing names in trees and on yeah. spray painting rocks and all that. That just isn't right to be doing and there's no reason for it. But yeah. So I hope that aspect of it, the damaging of the environment goes away, but I definitely hope that in the coming years, more and more people start to realize like, this is more fun than just sitting at home playing video games. Yeah. As great as video games are, it's more fun to be out in nature and enjoying the life around you and listening to the birds chirp and the squirrels skitter around on the ground and the leaves crunch under your feet. Like, so I definitely hope that that sticks around. That was definitely the the highlight if there was really any highlight of uh 2020 yeah no i agree definitely more people used the trails and sought time outdoors and i think it really changed people's perspectives on it of getting out of that rat race of commuting all the time or you know i think just time at home more time with family uh, and less entertainment available to sort of force people to be like, well, what am I going to do? I guess I'll go outside, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I think overall, I totally agree that I think one good potential outcome from from this past year is is that, is that pe- maybe people are having having a little bit of a new perspective. It was sort of like a wake up call of like, hey, guess what? The outdoors are great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, Cody, this has been really great. I'm so glad that you took the time to come on the show today and that we got to chat and I got to hear more about your work and your whole creative process and everything. It's been really wonderful getting to know you. And uh, if listeners want to learn more about your photography and what would be the best way for them to find you? Well, since I don't have social media anymore, uh, I guess that would be my website, which is just www.codyschultz.com. Okay, great. And I will definitely put that in the show notes. And thank you so much for being here today. It was really fun and I'll be in touch. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Cody. And again, you can check out his photography and writing on his website at CodySchultz.com. That's Cody, C-O-D-Y, Schultz, S-C-H-U-L-T-Z.com. And again, thank you, Cody, for coming on the show. And thank you, dear listener, for sticking around until the end. I appreciate you. And I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. If you want to get the links and other information mentioned today, you can find the show notes at outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash episode 21. And don't forget to check out composewithclarity.com to learn more about my upcoming live workshop and to register with the 15% discount. We have more exciting guests coming up on the podcast, including Colorado-based nature photographer Jennifer Renwick to chat about what it's like being a full-time photographer, finding abstract compositions in nature, and the value of photography projects. And shortly after that, we'll chat with Vancouver-based landscape photographer Karen Cooper 
about owning her own gallery, the importance of environmental preservation, and using her photography as a way of connecting others to nature. And I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode where I'll be answering a couple of your submitted questions. So until then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.